Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke, a North Korean joke from Jay Leno. According to Kim Jong-il's biography, he's been constantly accused of dishonesty, drunkenness, and sexual excess. So if he lived here, he could be in Congress. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Jay Leno, stolen yeah. by Korean-American author Chris Lee. That'll help break the ice. Please don't sue her, Jay. Please don't, Jay. Okay. Her short story collection, Drifting House, just came out this week. Later, we'll hear from Angelica Houston, star of the new TV series, Smash. Also coming up, writer Caitlin Flanagan takes on etiquette, We Take the Asteroids Galaxy Tour, and James Cromwell of the silent movie The Artist lists his favorite quiet stars. But first, this news. Podcast listeners, you've heard it all before. Death, weather, bad things. So let's go straight to the show. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Coming up, actor James Cromwell gives us a list. Cromwell, also known as the dude from Babe. Yes, and also from this year's Oscar-nominated movie, The Artist, which has a dog instead of a pig. Mm. Also, because nothing says party like nuclear holocaust, we tell you about the Cold War's doomsday planes. Don't worry, there's a cocktail involved. Yes. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you may have been hearing these cultural headlines. Don Cornelius, host of Soul Train, died in Los Angeles at age 75. The Mona Lisa might just have a twin. The replica is due to be unveiled at the Prado Museum. During the 2012 Super Bowl this coming Sunday, Nicki Minaj and MIA will join Madonna on stage. Now for something you might not have heard, we are talking to Jessica Cohen. She is editor-in-chief of the women's culture website, Jezebel.com. Jessica, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? This weekend, I'm going to be talking about TLC's latest addition to their reality freak show lineup, and it is called <laughs> Sorority Girls. Sorority Girls? That sounds pretty tame. It's probably more tame than we want, but they are taking a group of sorority girls and sending them over to Britain to open Britain's oh. first sorority. So oh, we're wow. taking America's most amazing cultural achievement, the Greek system, and we are exporting <laughs> it to the motherland. I'm sure they'll thank us endlessly for that. I don't, oh, I'm, that's, God. It's sort of surprising <laughs> to me, though. They don't have any any fraternities or sororities there? They don't. And in order to get the ball rolling and TLC being smart about the people they put on camera, mm -hmm. they are taking these Sigma Gamma girls from whatever university and sending them to the town of Leeds, oh. which is very middle class. Mm -hmm. And the girls who are trying to be in the sorority, these English girls, they are... They're like kinder, gentler versions of Snooky. <laughs> With better now, grammar. Now, do we just think that they're kinder and gentler because they have British accents? Yeah, it makes them seem more fancy. But no, I mean, they're thus far, they're not stumbling around drunk. I'm sure that happens by episode three. But just very scantily clad, very... Um... You know, I think maybe Britain doesn't have a frat system because the whole country is a bit of a frat. <laughs> they, they have a king and a queen. They invented yeah. spanking with a cricket stick. And there's a lot of binge drinking. So You're right. Right. And Kate Middleton had to rush for like eight years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Basically. So we've already lived the reality show. This is going to be a pale imitation. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Jessica Cohen, thanks for bringing this cultural landmark to light. Thanks for having me. And Cheerio. <laughs> and now, time for Pimp's Cup. 
or time for some kind of cocktail anyway. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our thirst and thought-quenching history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week back in 1961, America made plans for the worst-case scenario. Flight plans, to be exact. Mm. Our friend Michelle Philippi has the story. 51 years ago, America's Strategic Air Command invented a mirror they didn't ever want to use. The Cold War was on, and the U.S. figured the Soviet Union might start a nuclear war, basically any second. That was bad enough when nukes had to be dropped on targets from planes. But then long-range missiles came along. Now, instead of an hour, a Soviet nuke could hit U.S. soil with less than 15 minutes advance warning. Missiles like that could vaporize U.S. military command centers before the president could even order a counterattack. So officials created Operation Looking Glass, a fleet of high-tech jets from which they could command the armed forces during a nuclear war. They were nicknamed Doomsday Planes. Of course, you also had to make sure those planes wouldn't be wiped out by nukes. So starting February 3rd, 1961, a looking glass jet was always in the air, 24 hours a day for 29 years. Looking glass pilots followed an unusual set of rules. Like if they were on high alert, they had to wear an eye patch. That way, in the event of a blinding nuclear explosion, they'd still have a good eye left to fly the plane. Meanwhile, U.S. presidents weren't allowed anywhere near doomsday planes, just in case Soviet intelligence noticed and assumed America was about to start a war. Eventually, of course, the Cold War thawed. And in 1990, the doomsday planes all finally landed. But even today, there's always one on alert, fully crewed and ready to take off, just in case. The U.S. and Russia alone still have over 3,000 operational strategic nukes. So after that history, I could use a drink. I am speaking with Derek Brown. He is co-owner of the famous bars The Passenger and The Columbia Room in Washington, D.C. Derek, you heard the story. What cocktail did that inspire you to come up with? Well, I named the cocktail If You Push the Button. And I named it after a Sun Ra song called Nuclear War. Sun Ra, the jazz musician. Yeah. Uh, in that song, there's a refrain, If You Push the Button, Your Ass is Gone. <laughs> That's It is true, along with a lot of other things. Yeah, so I decided that the cocktail that we make for this has to be, A, it has to be a great cocktail if it's your last one. Uh, B, it's got to be pretty smooth going down. I think, you know, you want to pick a cocktail that's especially suited for the moment whenever you're drinking. Yeah. And if you're on the verge of an apocalypse or the end of the world, sure. you especially want something that goes down easy. So <laughs> the cocktail that I based it off is called the Bomb Cocktail, B-O-M-B. But that one was based off the balm cocktail, B-A-L-M. I see. So it's <laughs> it's the soothing balm at a time when you're being bombed. Yeah, pretty much. That's nice. So both those cocktails have uh, dry Amontillado sherry in it, an amazing cocktail ingredient. And especially if you're looking for a smooth cocktail, dry Amontillado sherry. So that's in it. Second, we need uh, bourbon for a little patriotism. 
we have a dash of allspice dram, which adds a little spice to it. You also want to include Cointreau, orange juice and orange bitters. And it has to be fresh squeezed orange juice. I, I don't know if you'll have time at the end of the world. So you, you, you might as well just keep it uh, in the refrigerator at all times. I was going to say the nice thing it sounds like about this cocktail is, is you'll be so busy constructing it that it will totally take your mind off of impending Armageddon. <laughs> Enrico, something else I learned. Yeah. During all those years when the doomsday planes were constantly in the air, mm-hmm. they racked up like 281,000 miles. Wow. Is that amazing? That's a lot of frequent flyer points. <laughs> You're right. That, that is a lot of frequent. It is. In fact, when President Obama tried to take us all to Aruba last year. I remember that. Blackout dates. Oh. Uh, yeah. Couldn't redeem them. Airlines. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Folks, you can always travel to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Today's guest is actor James Cromwell. He starred in TV shows like Six Feet Under and ER. He was nominated for an Oscar for his role as the farmer in the movie Babe. Today, he gives us a list inspired by his most recent work. Hi, my name's James Cromwell, and I'm in a movie called The Artist, which is a silent black-and-white film. I play the chauffeur, Clifton. And here's my list of uh, actors who can do the most with silence. Number one would be Ralph Richardson, who is a wonderful English actor, a contemporary of Olivier's and Gil Goods. He also spoke very beautifully, but he had the ability to stop everything with a look. He's the only actor I know who can play God convincingly in Time Bandits, which is a wonderful film. But he also played James Tyrone in Long Day's Journey with Katherine Hepburn. He was wonderful in Long Day's Journey. He's one of the few actors that actually got that part. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye, Doctor. The story of Long Day's Journey is Eugene O'Neill as a young man suffering from tuberculosis his father's failure as an actor, and his mother's descent back into uh, substance abuse. I'll be right now. Mary. Yes, dear. What is it? That's an extraordinary play. Of course, the language is extraordinary, but also the silence is... Nothing. You're welcome to come up and watch me if you're so suspicious. As if that could do any good, you'd only postpone it. I'm not your jailer. This isn't a prison. I mean, it's easy to play James Tyrone bombastically to show his vulnerability and his awkwardness. Uh, I thought Ralph Richardson did a really good job with that. You know, talkies, there's usually, they don't allow them to have great silent moments. Javier Bardem would definitely be on that list. Uh, No Country for Old Men, what he does in that role is great. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss. I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. As an actor, to pull off a role like that takes uh, incredible focus because audiences tend to rely now on dialogue to tell the story and they don't really watch and interpret 
You know, directors feed them everything. They tell them where to look. They up the sound. There are explosions. In a silent moment, an actor has to tell that story uh, through his face. I have one more. A wonderful English actor named Robert Newton. He did do Treasure Island, which people, a lot of people know him as Long John Silver. R, matey, R, I, Jim, that's him. But my favorite film of his is called Odd Man Out with James Mason, which is about an IRA agent, soldier, whatever you would call it, who is wounded and someone finds him and takes him to this painter who is trying to paint the face of someone dying. Robert Newton's performance is, uh, God, he was great. Look at him, Turbo. All the other people I painted were living, but he's different. He's near death. Take care. You might find something you don't understand that'll frighten you. I understand what I see in him. What is it? It's the truth about us all. Is that all? He's doomed. Robert Newton and Richardson, they had a unique humanity. That was what got me and their ability to project that humanity. Not a hero, not a good guy, and not a bad guy, a human being. All sorts of flaws, all sorts of edges, uh, aspirations, all the things that may not be written into a script but are written on your face. That's the kind of actor I wanted to be. You need dialogue for none of that. You just have to show up. The guest list from actor James Cromwell. He's in The Artist, which just got an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. And Rico, he really does give a great performance. He does. I actually, I really loved him in that movie. In fact, actually, here's a clip. Oh, we didn't say spoiler alert. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry people. Hope, hope we didn't ruin the plot for folks there. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to take a break. Coming up, we provoke writer and provocateur Caitlin Flanagan. This is, like, so primal. I've never talked about this in my therapy or anywhere. That and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, we'll hear Nobel Prize winning verse by an imprisoned Chinese poet. And Brendan learns that in the war between nature and nurture, nurture may be winning. Which is good, because I think I'd fare better under a nurture regime. Really? What? Why is that? Well, it's hard to argue with nature. That is true. Not for lack of trying. No. But first, it's time for our <laughs> weekly etiquette segment. And here in the studio to answer listeners' questions about how to behave is writer and thinker Caitlin Flanagan. Mm. She's a former staff writer at The New Yorker and is currently a contributing editor and book reviewer at The Atlantic. Her books include To Hell With All That, Loving and Loathing Our Inner Housewife, and the new book Girlland. And is it also safe to call you a provocateur? This is a word that is often brought up. Um, you know what? I didn't see it anywhere. I just okay. I came up with that one. I've heard it before from a very early age. All right. and could, Oh, from an early age? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, your first book really provoked a lot of response. It did. Amongst um, feminists and maybe... Everyone and, was provoked. Yes. Around wow. the... Across the entire spectrum, yeah. provocation occurred. That's and a the, lot of And people. the quick provocation points were stuff like, you advocated the life of a homemaker. Here's the situation with, with that book. What I've learned is that you can say almost anything that an at-home mother has lost or given up, and she'll admit it. So, you know, I said, if you are in an economic position that you can make it work to stay home, you're going to lose a lot of kind of cultural cachet. You're going to lose a lot of Mm -hmm. economic power, whatever. And I said that very explicitly in the book. And those women said, yeah, that's true. But if you say to a mother who's working, well, you've lost something as well. 
time with your children, this valuable experience, whatever, that cuts so close to something that we all hold so dearly, which is our relationship with our children, that mm-hmm. that felt incredibly personal and incredibly attacking. Wow. And so the book, which then people would ultimately read and say, it's almost anodyne compared to the way it's, you know, <laughs> perceived, you yeah. know, but it became very big and very ugly very quickly. So that was a provocative book to write. Well, look, we've got a lot of listeners who have sent in some very provocative questions. Okay. So you were probably just the person to answer them. Right. Uh, our first question is from Carrie. She does not say where she's from. My 25-year-old daughter is due any day now, she writes, with my first grandchild. What is a good response for the tactless people who ask, oh, is your daughter married? I don't even understand why someone would ask such a question or reply beyond congratulations. Well, that's why etiquette's a really great subject. You know, we like to think of etiquette as kind of a funny thing or that uptight ladies like Caitlin Flanagan would be into. But in terms of social history, etiquette is always operating in response to the biggest possible cultural changes. That's why etiquette's always a great subject. And this woman, you know, if she has a daughter who's 25, right? So she's probably the grandmother, maybe 50 or in her 50s. She grew up in a time when there was nothing more stigmatized than to be pregnant and a single woman. You just, when she was young, girls who were in high school, if you got pregnant that day, you were sent mm-hmm. off. It's like, oh, she's down in Florida with her aunt, long vacation. She, they, Your baby would be taken away. Harrowing stories. Yeah. So that's the cultural reference that the grandmother has. Hmm. The woman who's writing. So right. what should she say? Well, so what she needs to remember is that you know, in today's America, 40% of births are to unmarried women. In a lot of parts of our country, it's not stigmatized. And I'm not just talking about the liberal left and the evangelical right. You know, we saw with Bristol Palin, their, their deal is they're so anti-abortion that they're very accepting and nurturing to, to women who are pregnant and not married. And doesn't it seem to you guys like probably her daughter isn't married? That's, oh. I kind of got that out of it. Because if that she could just specified. say- specified. That's true. So right. But know. I would say to this woman- Lean into your truth in this. You know, mm. if your daughter's not married, you need to just say, no, not. But there is, yeah. a, the, the, I think the other etiquette question here, though, is that this is like apparently the first thing that people say. I do think the congratulations should come before, hmm, I'm going to query you about your, basically your sex life. I would say that's how the grandmother's hearing it. Yeah, okay. I don't, it doesn't say first thing. I, and the grandmother could just be like, why are you single? Are you looking? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, right. We have another question. Uh, it's from Brady in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a place... I'm familiar with. He says, I loathe being asked about my work. Mm. Loathe it. It's the last thing I ever want to talk about. The problem is everyone thinks my work sounds interesting except me. I'm an organizer slash advocate. Who cares? What's an artful way to avoid talking about your work? If you don't want to. Well, right away, I his work does sound really and know, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like <laughs> sign Barack Obama, you know, he's an organizer activist. Yeah. That's true. Well, again, from a social history standpoint, our work, we all know this is becoming more and more and more central to who we are. It's the reason Studs Terkel made a career out of it. It's really interesting to hear about what people do. However, there are some people, I've known people who are cops, and I've known people who've worked in uh, child abuse, and they just say, my work is so intense and so Mm -hmm. punishing that I really need to get away from it. Yeah, give me a reason not to talk about this for a while. And I think talking from an etiquette standpoint, you know, etiquette doesn't mean thinking of a snappy, insulting thing to say. I think you could say, you know, I'm really fried from work right now. Yeah. If you're an advocate, though, don't you have to be a little bit passionate about your work? It sounds like maybe he's a bad advocate. Maybe that's why he hates (laughs) Advocate, dude. Yeah. All right. We have a question from Chris with a K. The question is, I'm young-ish, but apparently look even younger, and people frequently ask me my age. I think this is so impolite. Aren't you supposed to never ask a lady her age? What's a classy way 
to not answer this question. Ooh, classy. <laughs> she should be spelling classy with a K. There, hey, there we go. Um, well, this is, a, you know, Pauline Kael, who is a great per- – I really looked up to Pauline Kael when I was growing up. She was at, kind of at the height of her writing powers when I was at the height of my coming into myself as a reader. This is the film critic for The New Yorker. Yes. She was adamant that a woman – she said, you should never lie about your age and not because of any vanity but that – the, the era that you come from, your social, your kind of cultural affiliations, the art that shaped you, it's so who you are that to ever lie about your age is to deny the entire kind of cultural milieu that, that from which you came. So even yeah. though I'm 50 and you're not supposed to be 50 if you're a woman, that's just like – but I always <laughs> – pepper my age in because I'm proud of being growing. So this woman, yeah. Chris with a K, you say it loud. I don't, and let's be honest, do we really think she looks young for her age? <laughs> That's the beauty know, of radio. Really? Everybody from radio is like, I'm just extremely large chested for such a thin woman. Oh Can gosh. you advise me on that? Holy moly. <laughs> All right, our next question. <laughs> Moving oh, no, on. actually, it's your, this it's your is me. turn. Uh, this is a question we ask of all our etiquette guests. What is the most memorable get-together you have ever been to? Who, what, where? Details, please. Okay, I had a really good friend. I still do. We've just gotten back together online. She's probably not going to disown me. Dolores. We went to college together, a small college in New York. We both transferred. I went down to Virginia. She went up to a small Catholic college in upstate New York. You'll visit me in the fall. I'll visit you in the winter. We'll check out these schools. So, and this is back in the days of letter writing. And I have my date now. I'm like, oh, great, great, Dolores. I'll be there in January, such and such. And she writes me back, oh, great. She'll be just in time for Oktoberfest. Mm. I'm saying, Oktoberfest? It's January. I was like, <laughs> Dolores, I, you know, I don't think I'll be in Oktoberfest. So I get on a plane. I get up to the college. And everybody's like, it's so great you're here for Oktoberfest. And they had these buses. And they took us out to this hinterland. And it was in like an American Legion hall. And then the buses drove away. So, and it's pouring rain. And we go in there. And Oktoberfest at unnamed small Catholic college consists of two things. Kegs of beer and enormous chocolate sheet cakes. Okay. And Whoa. That sounds like the best college. At the best college. <laughs> U.S. News and World Report, number one. So yeah. like Amherst and then this college. Yeah. So people start drinking this huge amount of beer. And then... Like, you can't imagine how much of the cake there is. There's just sheet after, I don't know if there's a cake factory up there. She cake after she cake. And then the beer is being poured on the floor and the cake is being mushed on the floor. I mean, this is like so primal. I've never wow. talked about this wow. in my therapy or anywhere. <laughs> and then, I'm not kidding, it's almost like a mud wrestling environment what? where there's like beer, cake. Were you were you sliding around? No, in well, this? you couldn't help but slide. If you wanted to do anything, you were doing it perforce in a sliding modality. And this was, you know, this is before like mud wrestling was a big thing. But And everyone's like covered in this mush. I just want to say, by the way, that's a very authentic representation of the German Oktoberfest. Okay, yeah, I was yes. going to say. <laughs> that wasn't only the most memorable. That was the last social engagement I've had. <laughs> no wonder you like to stay at exactly. home with your kids. Oh, my God. Caitlin Flanagan, thank you so much <laughs> for telling our audience how to behave and not to behave in this Yes. Instance. Yes, thanks for the etiquette tips. You're very welcome. <laughs> and, folks, we've all attended parties like that, right? Wait a second. We have? Actually, no. You're right. I've never been to a party. Like but that. we have all made bad social decisions or seen others make them. So if you want advice about how to behave properly, send your etiquette questions to dinnerpartydownload.org. Or call the DPD hotline, a.k.a. the phone at my cubicle. The number is 213-621-3554.
eavesdrop. This month, a new collection of essays and poems by Chinese thinker and poet Lu Xiaobo was published. It's called No Enemies, No Hatred. Today, we overhear his English translator read an excerpt. My name is Perry Link. I'm a professor at the University of California at Riverside. Over the past couple of years, I've been working on a collection of the essays and poems of Liu Xiaobo, who is the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner. For many years in China, has been a scholar of language and literature, as I am. But then, in his last 15 years, has written more and more. Political essays and has actually gone to prison four times for shorter periods. His sentence now is eleven years, of which he's served two. This poem is called "Alone in Winter" and it's subtitled "Tu Xia, His Wife." He is writing it on a cold winter night when he's not with her. But for this poem, he's not actually in prison. The solitude of a winter night. Is the blue of a blank computer screen, simply, obviously visible, and also nothing. So just think of me as a cigarette, now to light, now to rub out. Go ahead, smoke. You'll never finish. A pair of bare feet crush into the snow, like an ice cube falling into a glass. Drunkenness and madness are the drooping wings of a crow. Beneath the borderless shroud of earth, black flames sob in silence. The pen in my hand suddenly snaps. A sharp wind skewers the sky. Stars disintegrate, then meet by chance in dreams. Curses dripping with blood. Write these lines of verse. The tenderness of skin remains. A gleaming light again shines on you. Solitude, plain to see, towering above the tears of the cold night, touches the marrow of the snow. And I, not smoke, not wine, not pen, am nothing but an old book, much like. Poisoned toothed weathering heights. Professor Perry Link reading his translation of a poem by Nobel laureate Lu Xiaobo. The author's latest collection, No Enemies, No Hatred, just came out. You're listening to the Dinner Party from American Public Media. It's time for chattering class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't, so we can hold our own if the topic comes up in conversation. This week, our teacher is Jesse Prince. He is a professor of philosophy at the City University of New York. He has a new book out called Beyond Human Nature: How Culture and Experience Shape Our Lives. So, before we go any further, can you get us up to date on the nature versus nurture debate? I mean, who's winning? I think there's a big gap between real science and popular science, which is to say. In real science, there's a diversity of opinion, and certainly among biologists,、mm. the view is that nurture is extremely important. But the line we get in the general public, and、uh, very often in, in media, 
is that we are basically determined by our genes. So I think people are getting fed a view about the role of nature that's greatly inflating the role of biology in shaping the human mind. So I have to stop hanging out with the popular scientists and go to the unpopular table. Or you need to read my book. <laughs> you can help me with that. Let's, let's get to your book. Tell me one of the things you discovered while putting this together. Absolutely. The first thing that became resoundingly clear is that genes do not determine our behavior. If determine means we act in accordance with the genetic program, it's simply not true. I mean, even if you look at identical twins who share the same genome, mm -hmm. the range of behavior you see between them is, is quite open-ended. Two mm. identical twins can have totally different personalities. You can even have one who's, who's schizophrenic and the other is not. It's really a, the flip of a coin very often whether two people who are biologically alike will be behaviorally alike. This is reassuring. Our producer is an identical twin, and I sometimes suspect that his brother is coming to work for him because some days he's not as competent as other days. But you're saying I should probably be able to see through that. Well, the, the variation in competence, that's a sign that he's doing a little switcheroo. <laughs> All right. What's another thing that um, emerged in your research while you're putting this book together? Well, one thing I got very interested in, in is the, the nature of emotions, because we might think emotions, that's something we share with animals. These things are really primitive. They're deeply rooted in our biology. Yeah. Um, but if you start to look at the emotions, they vary quite a bit cross-culturally. Take something like anger. So, we, you know, we take anger for granted as something that's really deeply rooted in our biology. But, you know, when we think about anger, we think about anger as this emotion that leads to aggression. It makes us act out violently in a way that we can't control. But in other cultures, you, you don't always even find a perfect synonym for anger. Is there a specific example you can cite? Like what well, culture? Well, I'll give you one. I mean, if you look at some very pioneering work by Paul Ekman, who's the, the world's leader in emotion research that was done in the 1960s, and he went to a very isolated group in Papua New Guinea called the Foray. He said, what face would go with this situation? Imagine you were attacked or insulted, or what would be the reaction that you would have. And he gave them pictures of faces to point to to express what emotion they would feel. And interestingly, in, in, in the foray and a lot of small-scale societies, the face that's picked is not necessarily the face that we associate with anger. It's very often the face that we associate with sadness, a frown, mm. you know, eyebrows lifting in the center. And if you think about it in a small group, if you react with aggression every time somebody steps on your toes, the group will lose cohesion. It'll fall apart. So these groups develop a very different emotional response to offense. If somebody insults them, they, they might feel disappointed or sad or experience a, a kind of a quiet brooding moment instead of acting out aggressively. When I get cut off while driving here in L.A., which is akin to having my toes stepped on, I get angry and sad. But <laughs> all right. Well, we've learned that genes do not determine our character, that our emotions can be shaped by our environment. What else did you discover uh, that shows the role culture plays in shaping who we are? Well, one that really follows on the heels of the emotion conversation is morality. So if you look at morals, we really find ourselves often assuming that there is some set of universal morals. We think morality may have its basis in biology. People say we're innately altruistic, innately empathetic. And I think a lot of the work on morals and philosophy is focused on trying to find these universal moral values that all human beings share. But in fact, if you look at the, the human record, moral diversity is much more uh, the rule. If you look, for instance, at the American South versus the American North, social psychologists have found that, that white Southern men are considerably more violent than their Northern counterparts. So in cities of the same size, there are three times as many homicides committed by, by white men in the South than in, say, the Northeast. 
Wow. And, you know, that's really striking. And I think when you see that, you might say, oh, well, maybe they have the same values, but they're just, uh, they're just acting differently. No. Give, give the same men a questionnaire about values, and you see these differences. And some of them are familiar. So the, the support for corporal punishment is much higher in the South. The, the claim that it's permissible to kill a trespasser on your property is much more widely endorsed in the South. So you see very, very different moral values being expressed. Wow. Well, there's a lot to talk about there. But sadly, not to be confused with angrily, we are out of time. So, Jesse, thanks for coming by and chatting with us. Great pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. And if you're a Southern white male, remember those are his statistics, not ours. So, Rico, fascinating book. Yeah. Although you might have noticed some of its points can be a little touchy. That's true. But the main thing is, whether it's nature or nurture, I still don't have to take responsibility for my behavior, right? Because yeah. it's either my genes or my environment that's of, of course. at fault. Yeah. So what the book does is basically broaden our options to make excuses. Nice. <laughs> I will read it. Folks, coming up, we speak with actress Angelica Houston and learn about another celebrity. The, the boneless, skinless breast is the rock star uh, of the chicken industry. Americans like the white meat. Backstage with chicken when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, a new track from Danish band The Asteroids Galaxy Tour. Mm. And in a few minutes, Angelica Houston explains the allure of show business. There's a lot of superficiality and there's a lot of good tables in restaurants. That about does it. But first, it's time for the main course where we talk about the best part of any dinner party the food. So, Rico, Super Bowl Sunday is the second biggest food day of the year for Americans after Thanksgiving. Really? Yeah. And do you know what people are going to be eating this Sunday? Beer. No, but I mean, probably, yes, yes but no. <laughs> people are going to be eating chicken wings, a lot of them. Yeah. So to find out how many, I reached out to Tom Super. He is the vice president of communications for the National Chicken Council. Mm. And I asked him, how many wings will America put in its collective Super Bowl belly? More than 1.25 billion wing portions will be consumed this weekend, and that would total more than 100 million pounds of wings. All right, when you say portions, that sounds different than actual wings. So what's a portion? That's right. So when you have a chicken wing, like you, when you see in the store usually uh, in a pack, that's a whole wing. When they're sent to food service, mm -hmm. you know, a restaurant or a bar, they're usually cut uh, into two. You have the drumette, which is like a little chicken drum, yeah. and then you have the flat, which is the piece with the two bones. There's actually... A a third piece called the flapper that's exported to Asian countries. Oh, wow. So technically, a chicken has two wings, but has four wing portions that we consider. <laughs> All right, so a four-wing chicken has not been created yet. That's right. So far, uh, my people tell me we're still a little bit of ways off uh, creating the, the third or the fourth wing on the chicken. But so that, that's fascinating to me, though. So as chicken wings become more popular, as they have, that means there must be more chicken bodies. What do you do with those? So we produce about 9 billion chickens in the United States each year. Wow. Each of them has uh, two wings, so that's uh, 18 billion wings, and then the, those each have two parts, so that's 36 billion wings. 
So you have the 25 billion wings that are actually marketed as the wings, yeah. and then you have uh, what's left over that are still attached to the bird, um, you know, sold as a whole bird or sold as a rotisserie chicken. Sure. Um, and then the other parts, you know, you have your your chicken parts that your cuts that you find in in the supermarket, like your chicken breast or your chicken legs, yeah, uh, or your quarters, stuff like that. But is it safe to say that now the chicken wing is like the rock star of the chicken industry now? Well, I would say that the the boneless, skinless breast is the rock oh. star uh, of the chicken industry. Americans like the white meat. Same mm. goes uh, in, in Canada, whereas the rest of the world, they actually prefer the back quarter or the dark meat, mm-hmm. which is where we export a lot of our, our products overseas. But especially right now, chicken wings are, are, are number two. You actually found some interesting statistics about chicken wing consumption around the Super Bowl. And this isn't actually the ideal Super Bowl matchup for you guys, is it? That's right. With all due respect to what New England and maybe San Francisco brings to the table culinarily. Yeah. The maximum consumption for chicken wings, the matchup would have been the New York Giants and the Baltimore Ravens. <laughs> uh, that's because those in the South Atlantic region, uh, home to Ravens fans in, in Maryland and then all the way down yeah. into Florida, are 27% more likely than the national average to order chicken wings at a food service establishment. That's incredible. Those in New York and and the Mid Atlantic are twenty four percent more likely. So that would have been that would have been the best matchup. Now, had San Francisco, uh, you know, won in overtime and beat the Giants and and played the Patriots, yeah, I think wing consumption would have taken a hit because those in the Pacific are thirty four percent less likely to order wings. So, wow. a San Francisco New England Super Bowl menu might have had some you know sushi and lobster rolls or some clam chowder, <laughs> but wings wings probably would have taken a little hit. So maybe there's hope. For the West Coast with some new chicken wing technology. Uh, it looks like Wingzone and some other companies have come up with some new sort of chicken products. One that, one that caught my eye were Cool Ranch chicken wings. And this kind of frightened me, I have to admit. It says, the great taste of ranch without the need for dipping. How does that work? Do they feed these animals spicy <laughs> Cool Ranch things while they're growing up? No, no, no. So to clarify, they're introducing two new flavor rubs uh, to their lineup, so oh. it's it's not the actual chicken. Okay, it's the actual rub <laughs> that they rub on the uh, you know the raw chicken wing, and then they uh, bake it or fry it. Okay, the, the chickens aren't eating salad dressing. I can <laughs> I can confirm that. I was thinking they just kind of hung out and ate Cool Ranch Doritos and watched TV, and then they kind of <laughs> just got snatched up. Can you tell us quickly, like, where the the chicken wing as we know it comes from? Like the you know the, with the blue cheese and the celery and that stuff. Sure. So the the story goes that the actual buffalo wing was born in 1964 at the Anchor Bar in Buffalo, New York. So the owner's uh, son had come come home after a night, uh, and the co-owner, the woman named Teresa Bellissimo, cooked leftover wings and hot sauce as a late-night snack for him uh, and his friends. And they liked them so much that the Bellissimos put them on the menu the next day. Uh-huh. They served them with celery slices, blue cheese, bam, uh, buffalo wings were an instant hit. That's amazing. Now, the guy who sold hot sauce to the bar, his name was Dick Winger, and you can <laughs> wait. That's really? that's serious. You you really? can look that up. <laughs> okay. So he went on the road, promoted the item, and it gradually caught on with restaurant operators around the country. So restaurants, bars, they really found out quickly that they could almost give the, the hot wings away because they could sell so much more beer uh, and alcohol. Oh, I see. When, when they had these, you know, these hot wings. Yeah. So they made a great profit. They really, you know, turned to these buffalo wings. And then as TV got better, technology got better, people were going to the bars, uh, you know, more to watch sporting events. So it really took off that way. 
And so you are the chicken council. Do you also do lobbying or, or advocacy for beer and blue cheese and celery? Uh, we don't. We, uh, you know, we have strategic partnerships here and there, and uh, you know, we're certainly not not an enemy of the of the celery or the carrots or the salad dressing uh, industries by by any means. Uh, and at the end of the week, are you just are you just tired of chicken? I wouldn't say tired of chicken. Uh, we promote a balanced diet at the National Chicken Council, which involves a you know a variety of foods, uh, fruits and vegetables, chicken products, other proteins, fish. So that's our that, that's our standard line there. All right. <laughs> but no, never tired of chicken. I'll accept your standard line. <laughs> Enrico, not only will people watching the Super Bowl be eating a lot of wings this Sunday, no. but people not watching the Super Bowl will also be eating chicken. Chicken dishes are seven times more popular than wings on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> so, on one level, chickens win this weekend. Yeah, but, but... <laughs> yeah, but on another level... They're absolutely losing. Yeah, it's a very tough game for the <laughs> chickens. Sad news for the chickens. <laughs> Folks, put down whatever chicken item you happen to be eating and visit our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is Angelica Houston. Condensing her resume to a couple of items is a real hardship, but here's a try. Uh, a top fashion model in the 70s, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in Preetzi's Honor in the 80s, a regular in the films of director Wes Anderson, and she stars in the new NBC series Smash, which premieres Monday. And Angelica, welcome. Hi. Uh, Smash is a TV show about the making of a Broadway musical, which is itself a musical. It is perfectly timed. I feel like the general public has more interest in Broadway now than it has in maybe over a decade. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we've just um, come out. I at least I, I say this with hope in my heart. Uh, come out of a of of a depression, and and I think a, a show about character and love and petty differences and <laughs> with <laughs> a, lot a lot of singing and dancing in between is a good thing sure. and very pretty people. Well, I think you bring up a good point. I think a lot of people are attracted to show business and to shows about show business because it's something that seems very you know romantic and glamorous you were born into it your mother was a dancer your father was of course john houston one of the great filmmakers you've lived your whole life in this world do you still find it that romantic well i actually haven't lived my whole life in this world i my father's reaction to it was was uh, to take my mother and bury her deep in the Irish countryside. That's right. And, and so that's where my brother and I grew up, in County Galway in Ireland. And mm. I, I've always thought of it as a as a safe place, you know. It, Ireland? Yes, and, and also just a safe place in my memory, mm. um, a place that I can always go back to and take comfort sometimes. No. And uh, the glare... If and I have to say, I consider myself lucky to be in the glare, particularly at my at my ripe age. It's true, but but I mean, do you still find? Do you understand sort of why people find it so glamorous when you've spent a lot, at least a chunk of your life in it? You know, I mean, you've seen the good and the bad. I'm sure. Yeah, well, it is glamorous. Um, 
it is glamorous, and there are a lot of beautiful people in the glare, and there's a lot of uh, yes. attention, and there's a lot of superficiality, and there's a lot of, you know, good tables in restaurants <laughs> and that kind of thing. That's the part I'm most jealous of. <laughs> we still have to, we have to do the ruse of doing a story about the restaurant before we get a free table there. Yeah. Uh, you play a Broadway producer in Smash. Typically, actors and directors, you have worn both of those hats, see the producer as the evil one who stunts their artistic vision, you know. But this producer is actually warm and optimistic and kind of fragile. And I wonder how much does this part make you reassess producers you've worked with and maybe clashed with? Well, um, the producer I'm playing, Eileen Rand, is... She's not just simply a bitch or uh, simply manipulative. I have to tell you, I was a little upset when I first watched it. I was like, I wanted to see Angelica be kind of a bitch. Well, (laughs) But then I I rolled with her. There are moments of bitchery, I promise you. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard on Broadway not to. Well, uh, the producers I've known have all had their problems, too, you know. No, artists aren't all that easy to, to wrangle. To to every artistic soul, there's also somebody, there's a, there's a counterpart to that, too, somebody mm-hmm. who has to keep the budget down and, and the show uh, on track. And that's the person I'm playing. And also somebody who knows how to sweet-talk everybody <laughs> and, 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 and get what she needs done. Yeah, I'm reminded of a scene in the first episode where you have to convince a director to take on a musical that he really wants no part of. Marilyn the musical, they've tried it. It was a huge flop. I think what we have will entice you. I want to do My Fair Lady. Marilyn was the American Eliza Doolittle, and she comes without strings, unlike My Fair Lady, which is an escrow along with my divorce. Tom Levitt? He's a nightmare. Well, let's just try one number, see if everyone can get along. I'm sorry, they want me to audition. You've got to be kidding me. No, they don't want you at all. I want you. Eileen, be real. For me to audition, Marilyn herself would have to pop out of that envelope and do me right here. And cut to the director is actually auditioning. So, yes, she has an inner life and and a vulnerability, but she's also uh, working in the business uh, world and... So there are moments when she's awful. That's okay. I look forward to more of this. <laughs> okay. uh, <laughs> I'll talk to the writers. Please. Okay. I don't I don't think of you as a stage actress, but you, you did write recently about being an understudy to Marianne Faithful in a London production of Hamlet in 1969. Was that your first theater gig? Uh, yes, it was. That, and, that's a hell of a first Almost gig. my last. <laughs> but it's true. I, I don't do a lot of theater, and predominantly because I live in Los Angeles. And I've done a few things there, and uh, it seems everyone goes home, uh, you know, after the yeah. performance and has tea and goes to bed. I'm not that kind of performer. I want to stay up and uh, carouse for a few hours. And Well, the next time you want to carouse, you know, give us a call. I'm sure we'd <laughs> be happy to hang out. Thank you. Um, you started out as a fashion model. And I came across this ad you shot in 19, I think, 78 or something. It's for a Japanese clothing line called Jeune Rope. Oh, yeah. And it this ad is directed by the late photographer Richard Avedon. This is one of the sexiest and oddest commercials I've ever seen. It's so louche. And there's like kind of an ambisexuality kind of going on with it. Do you keep up with the fashion industry and has it, do you feel it's changed a lot from that time? I guess I do. You know, I, I look at the magazines and it's not quite as exciting to me as it was in those days. And mm-hmm. although 
models in those days. We we were sort of anti-models. Really? Yeah. We we didn't wear a lot of makeup in our off time. And, you know, the whole idea <laughs> when I was modeling was, you know, not really to stand out until you got to the studio and, really? and had your face painted up. And then you'd sort of emerge from the dressing room like a bird of paradise. So you'd be like jeans and t-shirts the rest of the time? Yeah. But the girls these days are much showier, I think. All and, the time. Yeah. Yes, all the time. And they wear unbelievably high heels. <laughs> you don't think you can pull it off? Not anymore. It sounds like a relief. Yeah. Uh, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. We should get to these. The first is, if we met you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Uh, how does it feel to be aging in Hollywood? Yeah. Aren't you supposed They've to never... They've asked me that since, I, I would say, my early 30s. <laughs> So it's a question that I've been asked, yes, on numerous occasions for a very, very long time. That seems astonishing to me. I thought that was like the least polite thing in any situation to like talk about a woman's age. One would think. Apparently not. We'll go into it no further. (laughs) Feel the icy veil lowering. Even now, yes. Uh, Here's our second question. Tell us something we don't know. And this can either be about yourself, which will be very hard because you've been interviewed for many years, something sort of generally in the world. Wow. Trivia. Um, I'm really bad on facts, so I'll, I'll get really personal and, and say that I have a penchant for green underwear. <laughs> I did not expect to learn that today. <laughs> See? <laughs> <Is> there... <laughs> there are things you don't know. Is there, is there a reason? I think it has something to do with, you know, hoping for good luck or something. <laughs> oh, that's I, right. I read years ago that Peter O'Toole wore green socks, and I know it's something to do with being Irish. I was going to say you were brought up in Ireland, so you carry a little bit of the Emerald Isle with you at all times. Indeed I do. So those of you following along at home may have noticed our etiquette guest, Caitlin Flanagan, said earlier that it is not impolite to discuss age with a woman. But I just, I'm with Angelica. It feels rude to me, man. Brendan, I don't know if you want to chime in here. Green underwear. Okay. Our job's amazing. Uh, <laughs> People just tell us stuff. Folks, if you have hidden secrets to share with everybody, you are welcome to use our Facebook page. It's at facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. And that's the dinner party for this week. Next week, Emily Post's great-grandchildren will return to the show to answer your etiquette questions. And in their honor, we would like to politely thank our assistant producer, Jackson Musker, for his work on our show. Thank you. Thanks also to Robbie Carmen, Bill Lance, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this weekend's dinner parties. They're a Danish pop band with a horn section. Look out. And they're called the Asteroids Galaxy Tour. Their new album just came out this week. It's called Out of Frequency. Here's a track from it called Major. Bon Appetit.
Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham, and... Hey, guys, package for you. Ah, fan mail. I'll open the box. Here, you read the card. Man, the handwriting's awful. Oh, yeah? Looks like chicken scratch. Say your prayers, you non-winged, featherless scum. Rico! (laughs) 